card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. He stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays in the morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, running until 10 a.m. Eastern Time. I'm Professor Adi Weiner, a co-host and collaborator and a professor of statistics at the Wharton School of Business, and I'm here to break down this past month's top takeaways including some interesting discussions about football, basketball, and, of course, baseball as we head into the final month of the season. Our first guest will discuss his comments on pro football. His name is Scott Kashmar, and he's an assistant editor at Football Outsiders, which is where some of his work is featured on ESPN. He has also written for the Bleacher Report, and he's done statistical work for profootballreference.com. And recently, Scott edited and put together a very interesting ranking of the 30 quarterbacks into a tiered system. I think a tier-based ranking makes a lot more sense uh, when you're ranking players, especially quarterbacks, um, rather than you know explicitly stating with any confidence, you know, this guy's number five, this guy's number eight. You know, I think it's best to kind of layer them into tiers um, based on you know, certain qualities that they share, uh, certain, you know, different levels of caliber. And, you know, we kind of could argue many different uh, quarterbacks above each other, but I think the point of the tiers is to kind of show that for the most part, these guys in any given year are kind of interchangeable. You know, one guy may have the better season that that year just for, you know, reasons that may have nothing to do with actual skill and just, you know, perhaps the health of his teammates, the, uh, difficulty of his schedule or what have you. But, you know, generally speaking, consistency is uh, what makes any player great at any position. So the tiered system that Scott put together uh, had seven tiers, and it really identified quarterbacks as essentially four of them as being Hall of Fame level. Um, you can guess who those are. The only problem that I had to guess with that top level is it was really based on history. So and the forecast going forward about Tom Brady, he's, he's the number one ranked quarterback, is to me a more of a question mark. So although he's the number one ranked quarterback, I'm not sure that is the uh, ranking for this season. If you take into account the uncertainty, you saw Roethlisberger in that group as well. Um, going down into the next tier, they were generally always great, good enough to win you a game in any setting. And then the next level was uh, a little bit more inconsistent. And that was really how we kind of uh, broke out the quarterbacks and in terms of their consistency, which is actually a very good point because in statistics, it's variance that is the aspect of uncertainty that's not well understood by the general public. Ranking is easy, but incorporating into ranking uncertainty Certainty is what's interesting. Just for you Philadelphia Eagles fans, Carson Wentz was pretty much uh, dumped on pretty mightily by Scott. He said that he just didn't really have a good opening year and doesn't expect much from him. We'll keep our eyes on that. 
Our next clip was uh, with our longstanding guest, Rick Peterson, a former Major League pitching coach for the Mets, A's and Brewers and Orioles. And we had him discuss a few interesting topics related to uh, football, actually, and the prognostications for what we can expect from Tom Brady. But where he was most interesting is when he discussed Aroldis Chapman. So Aroldis Chapman, if you haven't been following too closely, is the world's fastest baseball thrower. He throws consistently over 100 miles an hour. He's been tagged at well over 100 miles an hour. And in any given game, he tends to throw 101, 102, 103 even. But he seems to be weak. The, uh, his opponents are, get, are feasting on his fastball, and the question is why. And one of the observations that Rick's made was that the rest of the league is throwing closer and closer to Aroldis Chapman, and so the players are kind of used to seeing this very rapid, these very fast pitches, and they're, and they're tuning themselves. But he had some very interesting advice to give to help uh, Aroldis Chapman move forward. So one of the things that you do as a pitcher, especially to the premier hitters, you want to throw a considerable amount of fastballs about 10, 12 inches in below the waist because now you have to move your feet. One of the reasons why these hitters are so good, that the premier hitters, they have an unbelievable foundation and they have this unbelievable balance. And if you can disrupt that on a consistent basis, it throws off your equilibrium. So now I, gotta, now I have to move my feet to get out of the way of this pitch. So I kind of disrupted this. Now I have to stand back up there. Like you watch golfers in, in high winds, even putters. They stand over a putt, and the high wind is actually moving them. And they have to, sometimes they stand away from it because the gust of wind, I mean, you're only, you're only talking about a three-foot putt, how much balance you need for a three-foot putt. But, but you see them walk away from a putt and come back because it disrupted their balance. You know, they're constantly moving their feet to get that really solid, you know, foundation. And if you go back when Pujols was with the Cardinals and, and they won the World Series, his last trip, I believe, into, in, into the World Series with the Cardinals, in, in that World Series, they did a good job of, of controlling Pujols. You can't shut him down. He's, at that point of his career, he's too good. But they controlled him, and they controlled him because every, in every single game, he probably had at least five or six fastballs that were in about 12 inches, 18 inches in off the plate, below his waist, somewhere about knee-high, thigh-high, knee-high. And, and if Chapman started doing that, like if he had, he, but in order to do that, you have to be ahead of the count. You can't do that behind in the count because now you're further behind the count. So if he can get into the count with some breaking stuff and use his breaking stuff and throw some fastballs that are in off the plate that a hitter has to respect to move his feet, and I just can't sell out on a swing and I can't just cheat, cheat my brains out to try to get to this, he, he'll, he, he would have success instantaneously. So if you pay attention closely to what Rick is saying. He's not saying that the pitcher should throw at the batter. What he is saying is that he should throw 10 to 12 inches inside low part of the plate. Get the batter moving. Get him dancing. Force him to not allow himself to plant himself solidly in the batter's blocks and that kind of plant allows you to have the ability to take down a 103 mile an hour fastball um, it's not so important with slower pitches but it is extremely important for fast pitches and we'll see if this is the advice that we'll ever get to Araldus. Our next guest was Chase Stewart, who is the owner of FootballPerspective.com, and he's a tremendously interesting character who produces a wonderful um, statistical analysis of football. And most recently, he published his power rankings based on an analysis um, done 
uh, on the Vegas odds. So Vegas odds are set in each game, but you can infer from the Vegas odds a power ranking. And Chase Stewart's method involves an iterative process of finding the best fit, probably the best fit with respect to some sort of error, but that's statistical information that we won't discuss here. And those Vegas odds are actually remarkably good. One of the advantages of having a power ranking is that you can use that power ranking to evaluate any team's schedule by just essentially aggregating their averaging their power rankings. And there's actually quite a bit of variation across the teams. And here is Chase. One thing that's always, I think, hard for people to wrap their head around is there is more compression in the NFL than you think. So you have the Patriots who are pretty clearly the best team in the league by just about every standard, including this one. You know, they're about seven points better than average. And the second best team is four and a half points better than average. That's a pretty big difference. But even still, seven points, it's not like, you know, that, that's not the stuff that 16-0 seasons are made of. Right. So it's a reminder of how much variance really goes into end-of-season records. One thing I do like looking at this to, to check is the strength of schedule. Yep. And now this excludes the, the final game of the season, but you, you get a sense of which teams, because these are true strength of schedule ratings, right? So these are, let's measure teams' ratings, based, the opponents' ratings, based on how good we actually think they're going to be, not something like last year's record. Yep, so yep. These, this is a great tool for using strength of schedule. And, you know, the, the, the Jaguars are a team that right now, you know, it, it's hard to get a sense of how, where that offense is going because of the quarterback, but they've got the easiest schedule in the NFL. They've made a lot of strong additions on defense. They, they, they seem to have a lot of pieces on offense, too, so kind of makes me think this could be a team that if, if Blake Bortles can get things right this year, they have the potential to have a really strong season because not only have they been building for years, but they've got an easy schedule. And that, that's kind of true with... All right, so Chase has this method of taking the Vegas rankings and turning them into power rankings. And one of the points he makes is that there really doesn't seem to be that huge a gap between even the best and the worst teams. Um, Seven points above average is the New England Patriots. The second best team is four and a half points. That puts the two of them head-to-head at uh, within basically home field difference. So if you take the second best team against the Patriots and the second best team is at home, um, it looks like it's almost a toss-up. And that that's what he said is a lot of compression in the NFL. And the point of that is that on true talent, there's not that much difference between the top teams and even the worst teams. But of course, um, that means that at the end of the season, there's a lot of randomness that goes into it. He also talked about measuring the strength of a schedule, which can be done once you have a power ranking. And the Jaguars seem to have a clear path to doing pretty well this year because their schedule is pretty light. Our next interview is with Rufus Peabody, and he's one half of the Massey Peabody analytics team. Uh, Of course, we're talking about Cade Massey of our show. And Rufus is now a professional sports analyst who lives in Las Vegas, as well as Nevada and Washington, D.C., and previously worked as a statistical analyst for Las Vegas Sports Consultant, the largest and most influential odds-making company in the world. So in short, Rufus Peabody, in addition to publishing football rankings, is a professional gambler. So Rufus had a lot to say about uh, gambling on golf. So, and one of the bets you can make is what we call matchup bets. And here's Rufus. Matchups are, it's less about, I think it's easier for the average fan or the average recreational better to, to say, okay, like I think Jordan Spieth's going to be Dustin Johnson than it is to say, well, is 12 to one a good price here? I mean, it's, it's intuitively, I mean, it's very difficult to, to yeah, it's not easy to do without, without, well, I- simulations and the matchups are 
provided by the sports books. They put out an array of 20 or 30 of these matchups. How do they choose them? I don't know. Probably trying to matchups of sometimes it's guys with interesting names. Sometimes it, I mean, it's normally golfers that are approximately uh, even in skill. Um, I think a lot of it's to draw interest too. So, I mean, normally top golfers against each other, that kind of thing. So what Vegas does is offer the opportunity to bet on a head-to-head competition between two golfers. So if there are two golfers in the competition, in the tournament, if the one player comes out ahead of the other, you'd win the matchup. And that's very different than betting on who wins the actual tournament um, because um, there's only one winner. Now, for Rufus, it points out that it's a lot easier for people to make a bet on a matchup where the odds are much closer to 50-50 than betting on a, uh, on a long shot because no one has is even close to 50% chance of winning the entire uh, tournament. On the other hand, that, that, what that means is that most people are, are distant long shots. Even the best golfers are, are somewhat distant long shots. And one thing I've observed about statistics is that most individuals have a very hard time telling the difference between small probability events. One in 10 looks to most people the same as one in 100. Mathematically, one in 10 is 10 times bigger than one in 100, although they're both small. And if you can't discern the difference, you're going to get crushed by the Las Vegas book. And that's important. So the next clip had to do with uh, Rufus Peabody's understanding what uh, goes into a, a, a specific model for golfing and how he takes into account player characteristics and, and crosses those with the golf course. Course similarity, for, the motivation behind that was to sort of get at some things that, that the traditional stats don't get at, you know, things that maybe like the grass type is the same or, um, you know, they favor shots you know, they favor drawing the ball rather than fading it. Things that I wouldn't actually like be able to sort of pick up on with the the conventional stats. But what you're talking about course player effects, I think uh, I try to go a little bit more, um, I guess, process based than that and try to actually say, what are the particular attributes? What are the specific skills that predict success at a particular course? So is it being able to hit the ball far? Is it being able to hit the ball straight? Is it being able to um, play well out of bunkers or putt well. So in modeling golf, it's ridiculous to try to cross every player with every course. There's enough data for that. So instead what they do is try to extra extract from an individual player their strengths and weaknesses and then figure out which course matches their strengths and weaknesses. And if you can do that reasonably well, you can get an advantage and, and undoubtedly make money gambling. That's one of the things that Rufus Peabody does the best. Our next guest was Michael Bauman. He's a staff writer for The Ringer and the co-host of The Ringer MLB show. And uh, it was great to talk with him uh, about baseball, including about the randomness in baseball and how things can shake out this year. The Dodgers, of course, are are looking otherworldly good. But let's see what actually turns out by the end of the season. And let's listen to Michael. Baseball is so random because coming in with the best record the season is so long over the course of 162 games the you know best record can mean a lot of things it can mean you're actually the best team at that moment but it could also mean that you built up a huge lead you right. sort of you know saunter to the finish you, right. you don't know who's healthy you don't know how your team matches up with you know with a certain playoff opponent i mean the we looked at in um in 2014 the the Oakland A's were the best team in baseball for most of the season and they fell off at the very end and wind up in the wild card game against the Royals and there 
you know, the Royals had a lot of, you know, I think they were still a better team than the Royals, but the Royals had a lot of speed. And the A's starter in that game, John Lester, and their catcher, uh, Derek Norris, just couldn't control the running game, and that was it. And that was the difference. And, you know, there are just there are factors like that where, where matchups do, do matter a lot in playoff baseball. To say nothing of you contrast it to something like basketball, where the gap between the teams uh, is greater to begin with, but it's a high-scoring game. So a lot of that randomness is going to iron itself out. So what Michael was talking about is the essential uncertainty and randomness in baseball when it comes to the playoffs. So this year we have the Dodgers who are you know running away with it. The Astros are running away with it in, in the in the American League, and the and uh, it seems that it's inevitable that the two of them will go face to face or head to head in the World Series. But undoubtedly, there's so much uncertainty that it can go different. And 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 in Oakland in 2014, they were the best team, but they were ousted by the Royals. And so much had to do with the fact that the Royals had incredible speed and they used it to leverage uh, the disadvantage advantages that the Oakland A's had. In fact, John Lester wasn't able to really keep the runners on, and, and that cost them the series. And of course, they didn't even make it to the World Series, and, and uh, the Royals were the eventual winners. What's going to happen with the Dodgers this year? Well, despite the fact that they're looking to, to, towards all-time greatness, I don't think anyone gives them better than a 1-3 in three chance of winning the World Series. They are the favorite, but still 1-3. in three. And it's not like basketball, where, where the differences between the teams is number one greater, and an even individual in, an, in the course of a single game, there's more, there's more back and forth, which means there's more Sample size, which means the better team tends to win a single game with much more likelihood in baseball. That is absolutely not the case. Our next guest was Kevin Farrigan. Kevin is an independent writer who focuses on the NBA and the numbers uh, that are germane to analyzing basketball effectively. He also hosts the Nothing But Nylon pad podcast, um, which is Nylon Calculus's official podcast, where he picks the brains of the talented writers of Nylon Calculus. So we had a chance to talk with Kevin about Kyrie Irving, and by this time, Kyrie Irving has already been traded, but these comments were made before he was traded away from the Cleveland Cavaliers, and what um, uh, Kevin had to say really was not so good about Kyrie Irving, which might explain a little bit the decisions made to get rid of him. To the point about the numbers around Kyrie, uh, I wrote an article a couple of years ago now, I guess, uh, and it was either the finals that Cleveland won. It might have been the finals that Cleveland won, but Kyrie had struggled the first two games, and then I wrote this piece, and it had been kind of building for a while, but it was basically that the title of it was Kyrie Irving is overrated, and that got picked up by uh, The Cauldron, which is uh, sports affiliated with Sports Illustrated, and so I got a lot of flack from Cleveland fans because Kyrie proceeded to go out and have a bunch of really good offensive games. And they said, you know, you said he's overrated. Da, 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 da. And, you know, none of the things that he did really went against my point, which is that he's an uh, elite scorer and he does that very well, but he doesn't necessarily make guys around him better. And his defense is really, really bad. And so, you know, he can have games where he looks incredible um, and, you know, fans will yell at you if you say that he's not that great. But we've kind of seen it with him that even with LeBron on on the team, when LeBron's off the floor, Kyrie, the team doesn't look so good with just Kyrie or even just Kyrie and uh, Kevin Love. You would think with two all-stars that they would look pretty good, but they still don't. They really only look good when LeBron is on the floor. 
Very interesting. So um, perhaps prescient and understanding of what Cleveland Cavaliers new management uh, decided to do, that he's bad in defense. He looks great, but uh, that's just a piece of show. And uh, without LeBron, there's not much value to uh, Kyrie Irving. So we'll see. We'll be closely watching uh, next year's uh, performances, and perhaps uh, the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers are better without um, Kyrie Irving. And certainly Kevin um, Farrigan will be uh, sharply one side of that forecast. Maybe he's right. Um, I don't know enough about basketball to conclude anything. And I also know enough about forecasts that they're very hard to do. Prediction is very, very difficult, especially the future. Our last clip, Rick Peterson, whom we've heard and hear from every other week during uh, baseball season. So uh, one of the things that has been grabbing everybody's attention in Major League Baseball this year are the blasted number of home runs um, that have been hit. And the question is, why are they being hit? And there's definitely an observation that the batters are gearing up for home runs. They're swinging more like golf clubs, um, under uppercuts, and they're striking out more, and the pitchers are not quite ready to adapt to all that, although it's not that scoring isn't really up this year, it's just that home runs are. So let's listen to what Rick Peterson had to say about the launch angles. Well, when you listen to the data as far as swing plane, launch angles, they're up, as you said, you don't see hitters having swings like Derek Jeter had. Derek Jeter had a classic inside-out swing, and, and he had a lot of flares over the second baseman's head, the right field, and people would be like, geez, is he lucky? He's not lucky. That's great. <laughs> That's a great approach. That swing is going to produce, when he gets beat, it's going to produce th- those kind of flights of the ball. Now, because of, like if you go back a year ago, Robbie Cano had, had exit speed off the bat, one of the tops in the American League. His launch angle was low. He hit one home run in the first half. So basically, he's hitting home runs that are one hoppers to the second baseman. Yeah. Yep. And then they brought in Edgar Martinez, and he changed his his swing plane to get loft. So he got he got higher he got higher higher exit sp- not higher mm-hmm. exit speeds but higher better launch l- angles launch yeah. angles. And then he hit twenty some homers in the second half. So that must be somewhat of the brilliance of of, of pitching low. Is it has to be that much harder to get that uppercut launch angle on a low it's pitch? E- it's right? easier. It's oh. easier. So that's it. You're hearing the, the adjustments um, to your swing that allowed Robinson Cano to hit more home runs, and it makes a big difference. Although I will say there's lots of discussion about uh, the ball and whether the ball is juiced and um, not really 100% certain. Uh, Rob Arthur has some data that seems to indicate that there's more liveliness to the ball, some data that indicates that the seams are a little bit lower. I've looked at that data myself, and the data is uh, does show that the seams are lower, but there's an enormous amount of variation from ball to ball, and that makes uh, measuring differences in averages not so easy to do. Um, and um, with the small samples of, of baseballs that we have, the difference in seam heights is not so great. But if you take all the things that might matter, um, the, the diameter of the ball, which can also be in, imperceptibly to your eye, but noticeably with respect to air, di- air resistance, um, do you put them all together and maybe get 10 more feet on a, on the launch of a fly ball, and you know that that adds up to a few percentage points more home runs easily, and that may be the explanation. But it certainly has to do with swing plane and launch angle as well, and nobody can really hit like Mike Trout because any time you throw him a pitch above the waist or higher, it's just crushed. And um, I'm just a little plug for probably the best player in the major leagues today, and he seems to have mastered that technique um, better than anyone else.
So this concludes another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. Uh, Don't forget to check out the full show on Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. until 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's business radio channel 111. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business in the Department of Statistics. I want to thank our podcast producer, Danielle Bruno, and the producer of Wharton Moneyball, Matt Datz. Please join us again for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. And until then, enjoy your statistics, enjoy your sports.